Amen. <clears throat> uh, my favorite days uh, on Sundays are when uh, whatever this is, uh, is gravy on top of what God has already done here and the presence we've felt of God's spirit in this place. Uh, we're in the middle, however, of a sermon a series uh, on hope. Uh, I think we're dead center, in fact, week four. And we've, um, we're doing this series in the season of Easter. And uh, Easter, of course, is, I mean, it's, it's the center of all history. Everything changes on Easter morning. The one thing that couldn't be defeated in life, death, uh, has been defeated. And so with an Easter promise comes tremendous hope, right? And so uh, I've been trying to hold these two things before you for the last few weeks here. We have this uh, dual hope that God is redeeming the world and that God is drawing us to himself in union with himself. And on Easter morning, we see the beginnings of this. And we celebrate together the resurrection of Jesus, which is the first fruits of our own resurrection, which is the promise that we all hold on to that says, yes, Jesus is redeeming the world. Yes, Jesus is bringing us into union with God. Because it's Easter, we also typically begin this way, and so if you'll repeat after me, uh, hopefully you know the words at this point. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. Let us pray together. God, our Father in heaven, Christ our Lord and Holy Spirit, who is in this place, dwelling in our very midst, may you enter our hearts in a new way. Break down those walls that we've used to barricade us off from you and speak to us afresh. God, we are not a people without hope. We are a people of tremendous hope. And in the face of suffering and hurting and pain, God, you hold out a hope that we should all be holding on to and clinging to desperately. And I pray that each and every one of us walks out of here with a sense of renewed uh, mission, a renewed vigor, and a sense of hope that we can all have in our own lives. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Uh, I want to introduce you, if you don't know this person, to a, a, a man uh, who has now passed, but his name is Viktor Frankl. I've been reading uh, his book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, uh, for the last few weeks as part of um, uh, this series on hope, and uh, I commend it to you. If you've not read this book, I can't recommend it enough. Uh, the man is a psychiatrist uh, living through Nazi Germany. Uh, he is a Jew who is taken uh, into the concentration camps of Auschwitz and Dachau, and uh, he makes it out alive uh, to write his story. Um, not only, though, does he write his own story, more importantly yet, he gives us a window into the psychology of what's happening there uh, at the camp. And very specifically for this series, he gives us a deep window into these two things right here, hope and suffering. 
Um, I don't know about you, but I can't think of a, uh, uh, a, an experience, at least in modern memory, of more suffering than the concentration camps of Nazi Germany. And so uh, he seems to be an apt figure as somebody who can offer us a window into how to maintain hope uh, during times like this. And so he has quite a lot to say about this, and it's remarkable how much of it lines up, not just with like an Old Testament view of life, which we would expect, but even uh, some New Testament resonances as well. Which, uh, halfway through the book, uh, he says this, and so this is where we'll start. Uh, he connects faith with hope in a way that I've been trying to do as well. Uh, I've been saying, and, and hopefully you've kind of taken this on, that as you build your sense of faith, and as you become an increasingly faithful person, your hope should grow too, and you should be a person of hope. Of course, the hope that I'm referring to, the faith I'm referring to, is that something more is yet to come. It's that dual hope and dual faith that I started with, right? That God's redeeming the world, and he's drawing us to himself. And so this is what he says, though, connecting these two things. He says, the prisoner who had lost faith in the future, his future, was doomed. With his loss of belief in the future, he also lost his spiritual hold. He let himself decline and became subject to mental and physical decay. Usually this happened quite suddenly in the form of a crisis, the symptoms of which were familiar to the experienced camp inmate. The loss of faith and the loss of hope went hand in hand. He then goes on uh, just a few lines later to describe a story of where this came to reality for him. And the story, uh, I'll just describe very simply here, goes like this. There was a man in the camp who had a dream. And the dream said that on March 30th of that year, 1945, uh, the uh, liberation was going to happen. And as this man was hoping for the liberation to indeed happen on March 30th, he was filled with all kinds of life and possibility, and he knew that he could hold out to the end of it all, right? But as that day approached, March 30th, it was increasingly clear that his dream was not coming true and that the liberators were not going to free them on that date. And so Frankel describes the scenario in which on March 29, the day before, he gets ill and he's sick. And on March 30th, he, uh, he's so sick that he completely passes out. And then on March 31st, the man dies. And uh, he said that this sort of experience is, um, is apt in that there's a loss of hope that happens. And this man, as long as he had hope that sure enough a liberator was coming and going to free him at some point, he was able to live quite well. And then once that day came, and it seemed that all hope was indeed lost, well, his life indeed was lost. And so Frankel's point is to be taken with the utmost seriousness for us this morning, 
which is simply put, and to use his words here, with the loss of our hope and faith, we are doomed. Paul says it a little differently, though. He offers uh, some hope in the midst uh, of trying times, in the midst of his own suffering. Uh, and you see it in our scripture passage for today, which is 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, if you have it, go ahead and, and uh, open it up. It's, for me, it, it was one of these passages that I came across and I thought, I don't know that I would have seen it quite this way, but I find a lot of power in it now that I have. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. Paul is uh, speaking to the Corinthians at least here a second time. He's probably had actually any number of encounters with them. And, um, and it's clear he's had some kind of trial, some kind of suffering, some kind of persecution. And he's making this uh, appeal to the Corinthian people. And he says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. This word despair, it shows up again in the book of 2 Corinthians uh, in a famous passage that you probably know a little better than the one I'm reading this morning. And in this one, he says this, he says, uh, he's talking about jars of clay and that we are jars of clay and we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power that belongs to God and not to us. And so he says things like, we are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're persecuted. We are perplexed, rather, but not driven to despair. And he goes on, right? And so in chapter four, he's saying, we are perplexed, yes, but we are not in despair. But just a few chapters earlier, same word, he knows what he's saying. He says what? He says here, it sure seemed like the burden was so heavy that it was beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. And it is worth asking, well, which one's right? Is, is he really saying that we are uh, perplexed, but then we shouldn't despair, right? And the answer is yes. And it, or is he saying here uh, that he actually did have some measure of despair? And the answer there is also yes. Paul is, like us, just realists. And in the moment of it all, it sure feels like despair, Right? But Paul's story isn't done with that phrase right there. And so he goes on. He doesn't stop with despair. He goes on in verse 4, or in verse 10, rather. Sorry, in verse 9. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. And here it's important, he doesn't just say we rely on God. He's, he, he pulls out a very specific attribute of God's nature and of what God has done. And what kind of God does Paul serve and what kind of God do we serve? We serve a God who raises the dead, right? And why would he pull this out? So as we've been saying for weeks now, this is our ultimate hope. 
And so Paul himself finds himself in despair. He finds himself in a place where he, he believes he's being sentenced to death. But this was to make him rely not on Paul, but on God who raises the dead. And so what happens next in verse 10? He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and here's Paul's hope in action. He says, and he will deliver us. On him we set our hope that he will deliver us again. It's worth asking and I'm just going to tell you right now, my answer to it is unsatisfactory. Why do we suffer? This is one of life's great questions, right? Why suffering at all? We can offer any number of reasons. I could give you like a philosophical discourse on the problem of evil, but if you're in the midst of suffering, that's not going to help. How do I know? There's a man who I rather like. He is a philosopher himself, and his name is Nicholas Wolterstorff. He's now about 90 years old, so he's got some wisdom on him, right? He is a Christian philosopher and has spent a lot of time thinking about deep issues like why suffering. When his son was 25, his son died, tragically in a mountain climbing accident. And this rocked Nicholas Wolterstorff's world. And this brilliant, prominent Christian philosopher who had, and at least was supposed to have, all the answers in life, suddenly was met with an answer he couldn't come up with. And so this is what he writes. He says, to the most agonized question I have ever asked, I do not know the answer. I do not know the answer. I do not know, he goes on, why, and there it is, why God would watch him fall. I do not know why God would watch me wounded. I cannot even guess. My wound is an unanswered question. The wounds of all humanity are an unanswered question. Again, he is a Christian philosopher now 90 years old, lots of wisdom on him. But when it came and comes to life's toughest question, why suffering? Why do these terrible things happen? Philosophical answers are just not going to get you there. Decades after the event, however, he goes on to write, and he doesn't stop. He continues, and he says this. He says, my faith endured, but it would become a different kind of faith a faith that incorporated my son's death and my grief. And that would reveal to me a different kind of God, more mysterious. My relationship with my fellow human beings also changed. I felt an emotional affinity, often unspoken, with those whom I knew were also in grief. This morning, I, I don't want to offer you a philosophical or formulaic answer to the question, why suffering? If someone could do it or could have done it, it was Nicholas Wolterstorff, and he says he cannot do this. What we are offered is not a tidy answer. We are offered a cross, a wounded savior, 
a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The God of the Christian faith is not just sympathetic, he is empathetic. Jesus himself was a protagonist in the human drama, but he was hardly immune to anguish. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he himself said, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. And in Luke, we read, he goes on, he says, in being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and then his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. And from the cross, he shouts, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the cry of agonized uncertainty. John Stott, a monumental figure in the 20th century, himself a philosopher of his own right, but more importantly, a theologian, he once wrote, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. And he says, in the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? Lots of wrong answers to the question, why suffering? They abound. A few out there that you've probably heard before go something like this. Is the, is the suffering my punishment from God? Have I done something that, that God is punishing me in my suffering? And the book of Job is like one big long answer that says no. Job is a righteous man experiencing suffering in his own life. And it is not, despite his friend's plea, about Job's wrongdoing or God's punishing him for this. It's about something else. We might ask, have I done something wrong in life to deserve or to receive this punishment or to receive this suffering? And there again, no, not necessarily is the answer. C.S. Lewis says this, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken, it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable, C.S. Lewis says, and to be vulnerable is to be open to pain, and to be open to pain is to be open to true suffering. Often, frankly, when you live life rightly, you will still receive the pain and the suffering of life. It is simply part of the journey. Have I done something wrong? Have I sinned? Is God punishing me? Probably not. Maybe not. Has God abandoned me? Most certainly not. Paul takes a unique view of his own suffering 
We see it again in the, the letters to the Corinthians, and it, it seems like the Corinthian people, they, uh, they notice Paul's suffering too. And in fact, they notice it so much that they start to question Paul and wonder why he's suffering and they're not. In fact, it's so bad, apparently, that they start to doubt whether they should really trust him at all. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 to 14, we find this. Paul is, is chastising the Corinthian people, and he says this. He's uh, being sarcastic here. He says, already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings and would that you did reign so that we might share this rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we, we've become spectacles to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, Paul says. But you, you Corinthian people, you are wise. We are weak, but you are strong. You're held in honor. We are held in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and we thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still your Bible says, like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Paul has a very different perspective on suffering than, frankly, many of us. He doesn't point to it and say, I've done something wrong or God's punishing me. He has a, a view that somehow embraces it as part of his journey, and he knows that he's pushing on toward this larger goal, this larger hope that he has envisioned, one that God himself has given to him, a hope that someday all things will be redeemed and that God is drawing us to himself. This morning, friends, what I want you to know is that our suffering is actually our best opportunity for God to completely transform us into who we are meant to be. That is not a comfortable thing to say, and it is most not, most certainly not, a comfortable thing to live through. But it's worth saying again, our suffering is our best opportunity for God to completely transform us into who we are meant to be. And this, this difficult path, it turns out it actually says far more about us and just how much transformation is needed than it does about God's heart. Let me promise you this, God never, never delights in our suffering. He never delights in our pain. But God is standing ready to use it for our transformation and for his glory, if we are willing. Jesus, uh, in the book of John, is talking to his disciples, and he says this. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains just a grain of wheat, right? But, 
If it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. What Jesus is saying here is that at various points in our life, God is calling us to do what? To pick up our crosses, to die to our own desires and those selfish parts that are left within us, and to follow him. And how does God do this? Unfortunately, it's often through the hardest of times. And in these hardest of times are the times we need to cling to our hope. It's my firm belief that suffering is actually an invitation from God. It's not one we all, any of us hope to get, just so we're all clear about that. None of us await the invitation that shows up in the mail that says, hey, uh, you're about to go through something really hard. Nobody wants it. But it is an invitation. It's an invitation into God's transformative power in our lives. A few weeks ago, I read uh, Romans chapter 5, And it's one we're familiar with in verses 3 and 4. Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings. Here it is, right? Knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And if you were here and you were taking great notes and you remember what I said then is what I still believe now, which is what Paul is saying here is not a given, It's not a given that just because you suffer, it will end up leading to hope. The suffering instead is an invitation. It's asking something of you. It's drawing you into endurance. It's drawing you into character change, and it's drawing you into hope. Victor Frankl has a few things to say about this very thing. And so I brought my book with me, and uh, I was surprised to find uh, some of what he's saying here. Um, Because again, it resonates very much with a Christian worldview. And so he goes on to talk about, again, his experiences at the camp in Auschwitz. And he says, we who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts, comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances to choose one's own way. These are not my words. These are the words of a man who has lived through a concentration camp and seen the worst of the worst, seen death up close and personal many times over. And he's the one who says that you can still hold on to just one thing. Even when the world around you is going to hell in a handbasket, you can hold on to one thing, And that is, for him, to choose one's attitude and one's own way. But he goes on. He doesn't stop there. 
And this is where it gets interesting for me, and should for you, too. He quotes from Dostoevsky, who himself is a Christian, and the quote is that there is only one thing that I dread, not to be worthy of my sufferings, which itself, by the way, is a quote from the book of Acts. And Frankel reflects on this, and he says, these words frequently came to my mind after I became acquainted with those martyrs whose behavior in camp, whose suffering and death bore witness to the fact that the last inner freedom cannot be lost. It can be said that they were worthy of their sufferings. The way they bore their suffering was a genuine inner achievement. It is this spiritual freedom which cannot be taken away that makes life meaningful and purposeful. And then he goes on. And he says, The way in which a man accepts his fate and all the suffering it entails, the way in which he takes up his cross, his words, and Jesus. The way in which he takes up his cross gives him ample, and here's the word, opportunity, even under the most difficult circumstances, to add a deeper meaning to his life. It may, repain, it may remain brave, dignified, and unselfish, or in the bitter fight for self-preservation, he may forget his human dignity and become no more than an animal. And here lies, again, the chance for a man either to make use of or to forego the opportunities of attaining the moral values that a difficult situation may afford him. And this decides whether he is worthy of his sufferings. If it were me saying these words, you shouldn't trust those words. I mean, I've suffered some in my life, but this man, he saw the worst of the worst that this modern world offered. And he said these things. Unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it cannot bear life. Every suffering, he says, and I would echo, is an opportunity for new life. Every death is the chance for new life. But will we open our hands when the time comes and say to God, not my will, but yours? What appears to us as unbearable and what appears to us as death and tragedy and suffering this is often where life begins. This is where redemption begins. This is where the work of God is demonstrated anew and the glory of God is made clear. Again, God does not enjoy our suffering. He takes no delight in it. But God does use it for our transformation and for his glory. All the victories and accolades and praises we can earn in this life are great. And they can teach us a lot of things about ourselves, but they actually can only teach us so much about ourselves. I believe that our failures and our hurts, even our deaths, that 
the fullness of life really comes into focus in these times. And through our struggle, we see far more about ourselves and what we're capable of. And if you've never come to the end of yourself and been met with something beyond yourself, whether that be failure or the grace of God that meets you there, or frankly, both at the same time, then you don't know where yourself truly ends and where God is calling you into. You don't know what you're capable of and you haven't stretched yourself to your limits. Again, this is an invitation, not one any of us hopes to get and certainly not one we should seek out. But when it does come, it's an invitation we should open up and say, your will be done and not mine. So what do we do when suffering hits? This is what I want to leave you with here. Uh, I've been listening to Tim Keller talk about uh, hope and suffering. And uh, so what follows here is a little bit of just simply telling you the sorts of things he's talked about. At least the, the four responses that we could give to suffering These come straight from him. And so there's this Stoic response. The Stoics were a group of people in the ancient world, and their response was, suffering is just going to be there. Just accept it for what it is. And Keller says, and I agree, no, that's not actually an appropriate response to suffering, to simply just accept it for what it is. It's an evil. Let's name it for what it is. The second response could be the Epicurean response, again, an ancient group of people, and their thing, if you don't know, was that they loved pleasure. And so their whole deal was like, let's avoid pain and suffering as much as possible. And here again, Keller says, no, let's, uh, let's not do that either. It's actually not an appropriate response to suffering. And then finally, this is one that makes its way into the Christian tradition, in a a way at least, uh, is the ascetic response. And the ascetic is somebody who seeks out uh, uh, oftentimes um, pain. Uh, Sometimes they seek out, um, uh, they they give up everything in life, and and they, they renounce it all. And uh, even to this, Keller says, it's not quite the response uh, that we should have to suffering. We shouldn't embrace it or we shouldn't seek it out. And so what do we do? He suggests that we allow the gospel and our faith and our hope to swallow up our suffering trusting that it will be transformed completely in the future. And so what do we do when suffering hits? First, we grieve, because suffering, it is evil, and we should not pretend it is otherwise. We do not seek suffering out, because we do not seek out evil in our lives. And when it hits, we grieve knowing that hardship has indeed come, And when it hits other people, we grieve with them, knowing that they too, they have hit hardship. But we do not grieve, Paul says, as people who have no hope. 1 Thessalonians 4.13. We grieve as people who have tremendous hope. The second thing, we remember our faith. We remember our roots. We remember who we are and whose we are. 
We remember that Christ has died, Christ was buried, and Christ was raised again from the dead. And we too await resurrection. We serve a God who raises the dead, as Paul says. So this faith extends to our lives. It reminds us of our hope and what we cling to. Thirdly, when suffering hits, we look for the opportunity in the tragedy. We are reminded of Viktor Frankl and the opportunities that are there, even in the worst of situations. We do not avoid suffering as the Epicureans do, because suffering, well, it is an invitation. And when it presents itself to us, we do not relish it, for who would relish evil or hurt? But we recognize it as an opportunity. Something in your life will be challenged. Something in your life may even die, but that is not the end of the story. The seed must be put into the soil for it to take root and to grow something new. So we do not relish the hardship, we certainly don't seek it out, nor do we simply accept it, but we also don't avoid it. Instead, we seek God in the suffering. We await God's deliverance. Like Paul says in our passage today, we rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. The last thing I want to say is this morning I'm starting something new, and I want you to know about it. My sermons, at some point, I'm going to try to start putting into them some kind of call to action, not just in your personal life, but actually something that you should take out into the world for other people. Because this shouldn't just be about me, it shouldn't just be about you, it should be about our witness in a world who needs us out there. So how does the world know the life-changing power of Jesus? It's because we take it to them, right? And this is what I want from you. I want you to take the life-changing power of Jesus into a world that needs that. And in this case today, the case of hope and, and suffering, I think that today's truth about suffering and hope is best lived out rather than spoken. Before we try to speak it, and before we try to preach it, we must first live it. We must embody hope. We must become a people of hope. We are shaped not solely by the winds of what happens around us, by the momentary emotions or afflictions. We are rooted in something deeper something far deeper. And our hopes, they far exceed our grasp. Suffering in this way is an opportunity not only for your own transformation, but also for your witness and the transformation of others around you. Frankel uses the word martyr to describe some of the people at the camp he was with. This is a powerful word, martyr, 
The Greek simply means a witness. And I want you to be a witness. The apostles were witnesses because they witnessed the risen Christ and they became witnesses in another sense. They became witnesses when they died for Christ. Now, you and I, it is highly unlikely that we will become martyrs for our faith. However, all of us in this room, every last one of us, should be witnesses for our faith and for our hope. So few Christians will ever be martyred, but every Christian, all Christians, you and I, have the opportunity to be witnesses. And when times are tough and suffering sets in, the question arises, how will we wade through these storms? What does our witness tell the world around us? What does it tell our friends, our neighbors, our children? And what about those around us who are hurting and suffering as well? Do we tell them to to buck up and stop complaining? Do we look at their lives and say, everything's just fine. I don't know what your problem is. I sure hope not. We grieve with them knowing that evil is real and hard and sad. And we hold a light to them, maybe even for them, knowing that they may not be able to pick that light up immediately. They may not have the strength to hold it. And we offer hope and comfort. And we help them see that the story is not yet over. And there is more to be written. And in hushed tones... With sincerity and gentleness, but firmly and with faith, we tell them that they are loved, they are strong, they can survive. We stand by them, offering the strength of our presence, but more importantly, we embody the nail-scarred hands and feet of Jesus, the great wounded healer. And we point them to the hope that we have, to the Redeemer of all things, to Jesus, the resurrected one, who has defeated death and evil and will one day wipe all tears away. And then there will no longer be mourning or crying or pain. Let us pray. Father, we await that day. We long for that day when you have wiped away all pain and all mourning and all crying. And God, we are reunited with you. In the new heavens and the new earth, God, that is a glorious day that we look forward to. In the meantime, we ask that you be our hope. That, God, you hold out that light in front of us that we walk toward. That we might not be doomed because we feel we have no hope. But, God, that we have an ultimate hope. A hope that one day we are going to be redeemed. And this world is going to be redeemed. And we are going to be reunited with you. God, you will set all things right. 
Give us the strength to make it through. And may we be people who walk through this world holding that light to the people around us who desperately need it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.